Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, uh, I'd like to turn you to uh, turn you back to the book of Romans this evening. We're in a, a series, not working consecutively through Romans, but rather taking up some great and important themes, and especially bringing the the light and the clarity that uh, the uh, Reformation gave us on such passages. We've considered the sinfulness of sin and how it is that underestimating the problem had the unintended consequence of underestimating the solution. We learned the importance that we, of knowing that we are truly uh, bound in the depths of sin so much as to be dead as well as under its dominion. We then uh, considered uh, the joy of justification, and this evening we consider grace, not Red Bull. Let me explain. Reading together from Romans chapter 3, picking up in verse 23, but then uh, reading through verse 8 of the chapter 4. Let's read together the word of the Lord. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there is one God who will justify the uncircumcised by faith and the circumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that these riches that have been perhaps even hidden from the eyes of the world from ancient times, but now revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ, would make us again rich and many glad. We pray that your grace and truth, which have come through our Lord Jesus Christ, would shine the more brightly tonight in our hearts, for Christ's sake. Amen. I told you recently about a British 
comparatives religion seminar that uh, they were having a cooperative um, uh, arrangement where experts from around the world were debating what belief, if any, would be unique to the Christian faith. Maybe incarnation? No, other religions had at least some form of gods appearing in human form. Resurrection? Well, some other religions had at least some kind of return from death. Uh, the debate went on until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. What's the rumpus about, he asked. Well, they said they were discussing what was unique about Christianity. Oh, that's easy, he said. What answer do you think he gave? C.S. Lewis told the men, it is grace that sets Christianity far apart from every other religion. And when they considered this, indeed not even from a religion professor, but from a classics major, they agreed he was right. Grace is the special glory of the Christian faith, and that grace that is bound up in Jesus Christ, where the fair glories of his grace, more godlike and unrivaled, shine as our hymn says. Well, Paul makes much, of course, of Christ's grace. He usually ends his letters with things like the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, or the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, or even here in Romans, as we'll conclude tonight, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. His first word is grace. His last word is grace. But what is grace? In this series, we are going through some of these critical foundational concepts from the book of Romans to be able to gain or gain again some gospel clarity. We live in an unclear age that uh, does not tolerate precision. We will not get the blessing and benefit of God's grace, however, if we do not clearly understand. This is not a unique time in history. Indeed, uh, five centuries ago, people also then were not at all clear about the meaning of grace. There was confusion as well as division. So, as we've been doing in this series by way of introduction, let's go back again to Wittenberg, Germany, to the place where Martin Luther was living and teaching at the university in the early 16th century. But let's not go into the university at this point. Let's go into the castle church and there see what we can see. Well, there on display at the Castle Church in Wittenberg, we find uh, these relics all, all arranged for the faithful pilgrims to see. Here we find a scrap cut from the swaddling cloth of the baby Jesus himself. Thirteen pieces from his crib, a strand of straw from the manger, a piece of gold from the wise man, and three pieces of myrrh, a morsel of bread from the Last Supper, a thorn from the crown Jesus wore when crucified, and even a piece of stone on which Jesus stood when he ascended to the Father's right hand. There were relics, of course, from the Blessed Virgin also. There were three pieces of cloth from her cloak, four from her girdle, four hairs from her head, and seven pieces from her veil on which were sprinkled the blood of Christ himself. Um, I, I've not read anyone from the Middle Ages outside of Rome who had a better collection than Frederick the Wise, Elector of Saxony, Martin Luther's prince and patron. 
those relics and indeed thousands of others. In fact, there were 19,000 bones just from the saints were on display at the castle church in Wittenberg, prepared and ready for the pilgrims to come and to venerate them in order that they might gain the grace promised them with indulgence. It had been calculated, I don't know by whom or why, I'm still looking, I'm still trying to find the origin of this, I hope it's not apocryphal, so uh, just repeating now what, uh, what, I, what I had read here, it had been calculated that venerating all these relics would procure an indulgence that could reduce your time in purgatory by 1,902,202 years and 270 days. All right. Martin Luther had originally been excited to hear that, as well as all this, the Pope had authorized a new plenary indulgence. And why should he not be excited? Luther himself had been teaching others the doctrine, the Roman doctrine of grace. Here was his teaching. Tell me what you think. Quote, not because of our merits. Salvation is given out of the pure mercy of the promising God. See, sounds good. That's the Roman teaching? Reeves comments, no alarms went off, not a single eyebrow was raised among all the inquisitors of Rome. And why not? Because Martin Luther the monk was still then upholding Rome's own theology. He was loyally teaching standard medieval Roman Catholicism that salvation is by grace. I quote again from Luther, not because of our merits. Salvation is given out of the pure mercy of the promising God. It's all of grace. You keep using that word, said Indigo Montoya. I do not think it means what you think it means. I don't understand. The words sound fine. Oh, but you see the purpose of this study. Words can mean different things. And this is the difficulty that we face when we are speaking even today with Roman Catholics. We, we think that we mean the same thing by justification, by grace, by uh, the uh, 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 redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But in fact, it is the difference in the words. And so when we say that we, uh, as Protestants, believe that it is all of grace or that it is sola gratia, that it is of uh, grace alone. Well, Rome agreed with that as long as you agree with their definition of grace. I don't understand. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. What was the understanding of grace? Well, here's a few words, a brief explanation from a short tract on the website catholic.com which I downloaded especially for the purpose. The tract is called Grace, what it is and what it does. This, in other words, is the historic view. It is the modern view. It's a tract on Catholic.com's website. Right, here we go. There are, it says, two kinds of grace, sanctifying and actual. And let me just explain. Sanctifying is what we might call the grace of regeneration and the washing away of our sins where we come to life and, as Catholics put it, enter a state of grace. 
They continue. Sanctifying grace stays in the soul. It's what makes the body holy. It gives the soul supernatural life. More properly, it is supernatural life. So they explain. In its natural state, your soul isn't fit for heaven. What you need to live is supernatural life, not just natural life. The supernatural life is called sanctifying grace. If sanctifying grace dwells in your soul when you die, then you can live in heaven, though you may need to be purified first in purgatory. Okay, well, there we go. Supernatural grace you receive through... Anyone know? How do you get that, ba- that grace? Okay. Sacraments in particular at the beginning, you get it through baptism. And then once you lose it through mortal sin, you can regain it again through penance by confessing to a priest. Okay. So you're born in this state of uh, gracelessness. Through baptism, you enter the state of grace. Through mortal sin, you leave that state of grace. And if you die there, you drop to the place below. But by confessing your sins to a priest, uh, by receiving absolution and doing penance, the grace of penance, you're able to be restored to the state of grace, sanctifying supernatural grace. Okay, it continues. Let's go to the other kind now. Actual grace, by contrast, is a supernatural push or encouragement. It's transient. It doesn't live in the soul, but it acts on the soul from the outside, so to speak. It's a supernatural kick in the pants. Now, this tract, by the way, has the official Roman imprimatur, and it is not only the official teaching, it has been certified free from error by the church's magisterium. I didn't pick it for any other reason. That it, so, so, I quote, it's a supernatural kick in the pants. God keeps giving you these divine pushes. <clears throat> And all you have to do is go along. For instance, he moves you to repentance. And if you take the hint, you can find yourself in the confessional where the guilt for your sins is remitted. You can merit a supernatural reward only by being made able to act above your nature, which you can only do if you have help or grace. Once you have supernatural life, once sanctifying grace is in your soul the first time, you can increase it by every supernaturally good action you do, receiving communion, saying prayers, performing corporal works of mercy, and so forth. Actual grace. Clear? Okay. And it is for this grace that you are rewarded with heaven. Okay. Here's the way another... Roman Catholic tract puts it. Father Hardin here defines actual grace as temporary supernatural intervention by God to enlighten the mind and strengthen the will to perform supernatural actions. And here's the important part. That lead to heaven. That lead to heaven. Okay. You get it? How are you going to get to heaven? Well, you need to first be in a state of grace. And then you need to have these actual gains of goodness and righteousness, which God gives you through this kick in the pants called grace. Grace, kick in the pants. Get it? Okay. Michael Reeves, in his book, While the Reformation Still Matters, describes it this way for us slow Protestants. Quote, grace is a bit like a can of spiritual Red Bull. 
I find myself unable to pull myself together and get holy. But God gives me grace. <clears throat> and finally, I find myself much more eager and able to be the person God calls me to be. The red bull of grace would be given to those who wanted and pursued it, and it saved only insofar as it, here's the important part, enabled people to become holy and to win their salvation. Salvation is for the righteous. Righteous is as righteous does. If you want to be righteous, you need supernatural power, a.k.a. the kick in the pants of grace. Okay. Luther himself had been out to win as we have heard. He practiced just what he preached. He taught his students. Hence, the teachers correctly say that to a man who does what is in him, God gives grace without fail. Luther did what was in him. Fastings, vigils, masses, pilgrimages. He sought the grace of the confessional more than any of the brothers in his order. And yet, he wrote, my conscience would not give me certainty, but I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. The more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more daily I found it more uncertain, weaker, and more troubled. All these things were supposed to be making him more righteous. Every impulse he obeyed. And yet, as he said, am I getting more righteous? he became more and more troubled. It was then, what, during the teaching of the book of Romans, Luther found a message of grace so good it seemed incredible, almost impossible to him, that although all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we are justified freely, freely, by his grace, what does this mean? He reads on. Here it is, the beginning of chapter 4, when Paul brings up the subject of works. Well, actually, law is on page uh, 331, but works. For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Wait. For... What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Luther realized there was a definition of grace here in the passage set opposite the principle of works and boasting, a principle that had nothing to do with the grace he had been pursuing through the dispensing of the sacraments of the church, through the obeying of the impulses of grace, actual grace. Works, you noted from the passage, are not what we do here to merit salvation through the Red Bull of grace. No, verse 6, David describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. 
There is a principle of a free gift, as it is elsewhere translated, or 11 verse 4. If it is by grace, it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. There is another meaning of the word here, a very different conception and a very different vision for the purpose of good works, of good works. Works are taught. Do we make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. It, it says that it is not of works. It says that it is not that anyone should be able to boast. It is excluded by the law of faith. But then later in the, in the book, he realized, works are put forward on a different foundation. Not as these uh, achievements of the one who has drunk the spiritual Red Bull in order to merit the glories of heaven. David Bannon, the editor of Sports Spectrum, described this principle in a very homely way, and I hope one that all you kids can relate to. He says, the other day I came home from work to find a plate of peanut butter snack bars on the kitchen counter. Accompanying the delectables was a note from my 12-year-old daughter, Melissa, to her grandparents. Dear Grandma and Grandpa, I made these for you. Love, Melissa. No one told her to do this. She didn't have to. She just did it. But why? Was Melissa trying to make sure they loved her? Was she trying to win brownie points or snack bar points with her grandparents? No. She cooked up this little confectionery delight just to show her grandparents she loves them. She did it because she is their granddaughter, not somehow to earn the right to be their granddaughter. He says, this is how it is with the good works that we do as followers of Jesus Christ. We do not do these good works so that we can win a place in heaven, but rather our good deeds show the true evidence of the salvation and faith that are ours in Christ. Here's a granddaughter who was not seeking to become a lovable person. Here is a granddaughter who is understanding the grandparents' love already. And because that is true, it frees her or even rather encourages her to do things out of a loving and joyful heart. A completely different foundation than what Luther had been pursuing. And this is why Paul places this teaching on what we should do later in the book on a very firm foundation after he has discussed what God has already graciously done for us in Christ. Do you understand, he says, that being chosen in love before the foundation of the world, or to quote Romans 9 specifically, before you did anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, he's chosen you. Do you understand that you are holy and blameless before God, not because of your works, but through the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, freely given us, by his grace, through our faith in him. Or, as we have here, if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So Luther comments, he is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. Being made a righteous person, 
person, we do righteous things. And so Paul places this teaching on what we should do in its proper place. You are accepted. You are beloved. Your salvation is in the Lord entirely, who has done this work through grace and not of works or desert or merit. This is to set your heart free, as he writes in Ephesians. Salvation is not of works, lest anyone should boast, but we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which as a matter of fact, he's prepared beforehand that you might walk in them. Well, here is the contrary principle set forward in our passage. God is demonstrating his own love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God has loved the unlovable, Luther writes. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. And therefore, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. He underscores this for us in chapter 5. While we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. We were reconciled. Wild enemies. Christ died for the ungodly. While we were sinners, he has demonstrated his love in sending Christ to die for us. This letter has much to teach us about doing good later. Keeping the law, which we uphold by faith, growing in love, living as children of God. But here is the basis. Here is where it must start. Our standing is not based on what we have done. It's based on what Christ has done. And all who believe will be changed in heart and life. Yes, we do not uh, get mercy but we, because we've deserved it. We have gotten mercy because the Son of God has purchased it with his life's blood. As we read here in uh, more technical terms in 324, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I remember having a talk with a a woman who was uh, telling me, she was reading a book on religion. She she says she thought that Christians, as far as she could see, were just serving God with the hope of getting something in return. Kind of mercenary, she thought. I I said, uh, surely that, that is the idea in many religions. And it's absolutely basic to idolatry that you serve your God hoping for some favor in return. It's true. But in the religion of Jesus, I said, we are not earning favor. We are receiving favor. Totally unmerited or, in fact, demerited favor. In a word, grace. Well, here it is. The amazing grace of God that saved a wretch like me. Where is boasting? It is excluded. By what law? On what basis? Works? No, by the law of faith. And so it was that Luther trumpeted this message for the next few years. It was in the spring of 1520 that he published a little book called On Christian Freedom. And let me just give you a little bit. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of sins, death, and damnation. Now let faith come between them. And sins, death, and damnation will be Christ's while grace, life, and salvations will be the souls. For if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which are his bride's and bestow upon her the things that are his. Who can understand the riches of the glory of his grace? Hear this 
rich and divine bridegroom, marries the poor, wicked harlot, redeems her from all evil, and adorns her with all his goodness. Her sins cannot now destroy her, since they are laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him, and she has that righteousness in Christ, her husband, of which she may boast of as her own, when she can confidently display alongside her sins in the face of death and hell and say, if I have sinned, yet my Christ in whom I have believed has not sinned. And all his is mine, and all mine is his. As the bride says in Song of Solomon, my beloved is mine and I am his. And this is what Paul meant, he wrote, when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you hear the the note of triumph? One more quote. As works do not make a man a believer, so they also do not make him righteous. But as faith makes a man a believer and righteous, so faith does good works. Since then, works justify no one, and a man must be righteous before he does a good work. It is very evident that it is faith alone, which, because of the pure mercy of God, through Christ and his word, worthily and sufficiently justifies and saves the person. And so, in conclusion, uh, grace was this triumphant note of Luther, sola gratia, by grace alone. And the emphasis was not even so much on the sola, as we think, but on the gratia, what grace is. This marvelous grace, the free gift of God that lowers our pride and makes us humble and indeed puts our own sins against each other in a proper perspective. It reminds us of our great sinfulness against God, but that he has freely forgiven us all in Christ Jesus. It speaks beautiful words of peace and comfort that despite all of our sins, it assures us that God has yet loved us while we were enemies. And grace fills us with thankfulness. Luther writes in his commentary, faith is a living, unshakable confidence in God's grace. It is so certain that someone would die a thousand times for it. This kind of trust in and knowledge of God's grace makes a person joyful, confident, and happy with regard to God and all creatures. This grace, people worried it, they would, if people understood it, it would be the end of good works. Why, when this was taught, it became the greatest fountain of good works the world had ever seen. It spread a sweetness across Christendom. It brought God's love practically to bear in the world, a love that covered a multitude of sins and surely covered a multitude of my sins. This is grace that keeps us real and human and meek and humble and teaches us that despite all of our differences, that we may yet love one another deeply from the heart. For in God and his grace has loved us even when we were quite unlovable, yet enemies. The world does not need little encouraging bits of good advice from the church. The world, once again, near, needs to hear the clear note of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So may it be. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, it was when we were strangers that you sought us, wandering from the fold of God, that we all like sheep had gone astray. Everyone turned to our own way. 
And you have laid all of our sins upon him. You have sought us out. You have called us and found us and brought us back to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. You have spoken kindly to us and forgiven us, made us children by grace. How great is the love that you have bestowed upon us, Father, that we should be called children of God. We pray for anyone here that is yet far away, that they also might be able to find this very day the good news of grace by which they are able to draw near with wonder and confidence and take that gift of righteousness that you have given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand together and sing the end of Psalm 84, advancing still from strength to strength. It closes, the Lord will grace and glory give. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Let's stand together and sing. of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Go. In-